there's a lonesome wind blowing through the suburbs. Bald cypress and pine trees dancing on narrow boulevards. Flamingos, pinwheels, and real estate yard signs uprooted from freshly cut lawns. Garage sale flyers and missing dog posters spiraling down the beautifully asphalted streets. In the parking lots of supermarkets and megastores, shopping carts wheel unattended to traffic islands and drainage ditches and cars, cottonwood pollen thick in the air as snow, discarded receipts and Sunday circulars fluttering across the great paved plains like migrating butterflies. The wind, a lonesome wind, because it is forever restless, leaving high pressure for low pressure, eroding the earth in aeolian seeking, swirling clockwise in desperate searching longing for a home. Listen to the wind, listen to the traffic, listen to the 120 hertz magnetostriction hum of the power transformers. This is the new silence. This is how our story begins. Johnny Appleseed is talking to the animals again. Chipmunks, squirrels, birds, stray dogs, the neighbor's cats, assorted insects. He camps out on his lawn or on the grassy circle in the center of his cul-de-sac and speaks to the animals in suspicious whispers, the neighbors watching him from their windows warily, the recent high school shooting just down the interstate still fresh in their memories. Not that conversing with local wildlife is a classic indicator of serial murder, but the neighbors still think there's something unwholesome about it. A 17-year-old boy, best years of his life, spent conspiring with woodpeckers and bees. The apple seeds live in the subdivision Merganser Landings. It's a new housing development, the older developments having already staked their claim to the most popular bird names, Pheasant Cove, Eagle Point, Pelican Hills, Falcon Bluff. In Merganser Landings live university deans and pediatricians, petroleum engineers and senior systems analysts, insurance controllers and TV weathermen, supply chain managers, and orthodontists. Mr. and Mrs. Appleseed are both tax attorneys. They bought Johnny's twin sister Jenny a Volkswagen convertible last year for her 16th birthday. Johnny didn't want a car. He asked for bare root tree seedlings in a how-to book on reforestation. One block away, in a two-story tract house structurally identical to the apple seeds, lives Jenny's best friend, Slewfoot Sue. Sue's daddy owns and operates a fried fish franchise, and Sue's mom is a former Miss Texas Angus. Her parents met on a parade float back when Sue's daddy worked in beef distribution, waving, smiling tossing individually wrapped beef jerky to sweating crowds. Those were the days, says Sue's daddy, reminiscing in an easy chair with a cigar and a tumbler of single malt whiskey. 
Her mom's tiara and sash are in display case in the living room next to framed photos of Sue as a small child. Five miles from Reganser Landings in a part of town they call the bottom of the barrel, Paul Bunyan lives with his mother and four younger sisters in a three-bedroom apartment with eight-foot-tall ceilings. The eight-foot-six Paul perpetually hunched over as he navigates the cramped quarters of his home. Paul's sisters sleep in bunk beds, two bunny girls to a room, and Paul sleeps on a twin mattress on the living room floor, a pile of scavenged sofa cushions making up for the two-foot disparity between the mattress's length and Paul's height. Paul was of normal size at birth, seven pounds, six ounces, but by the age of five, he was taller than his mother. By the age of seven, he was taller than his father. By the age of ten, he had to duck to make it through the bunion's front door without gashing his forehead against the lintel. When Paul's father left the family, Paul was seven foot ten. In his last month of being able to traverse the apartment completely upright, Paul's sisters are all short for their ages, and none of them has ever complained. Just down the road from the Bunyan's apartment, Pecos Bill smokes his cigarettes in the parking lot of a saloon and save. He leans like James Dean against a 99 Honda Civic he calls Widowmaker and is outfitted with racing seats, chrome rims, flame decals, an aftermarket exhaust, and a souped-up VTEC engine, as well as a comforter and pillow in the back where he sleeps most nights. At all hours, the saloon and saves cigarette-butt-covered lot teams with stray dogs, speed freaks, fume fiends, daytime drunks, and methadone outpatients, five or six different radio stations blasting at any one time, an unholy soundtrack to discount 12-packs, unleaded gas, and two-for-one chaw. A sign above the icebox says, no loitering, but Bill loiters anyway. He was raised by coyotes. At night, on the edge of town, you can hear them howl. It's early autumn, the school year still not broken in, new students occasionally materializing in the middle of class with cryptic guidance counselor printouts timidly offered to interrupted instructors. The Appleseeds and Slewfoot Sioux attend Our Lady of the Holy Cross, a Catholic K-12 with a reputation for academic excellence and eye-popping annual tuition hikes, and Paul Bunyan and Pecos Bill attend Lone Star High, a public school in the heart of the bottom of the barrel with nearly invincible athletic teams and a state accountability rating of academically unacceptable. At Our Lady of the Holy Cross, the students abide by a strict dress code, Oxfords, khakis, v-neck sweaters, 
plaid skirts, Johnny Appleseed repeatedly running afoul of school protocol due to his predilection for not wearing socks or shoes. Slewfoot Sue flouts the school's uniform regulations more carefully, knows which teachers will let her get away with undoing a button or two on her primary colored polo or altering the length of her plaid skirt, while Jenny Appleseed is a paragon of dress code compliance. Her slogan while running for a seat on the Honor Council was, Jenny Appleseed, integrity you can trust. It's 9.45, passing period. In the hallways, wall-to-wall herds bottleneck around doorways, and in the classrooms, teachers look up baseball scores and cheap Mexican vacation packages on their desktop computers, and in the seldom-used girls' bathroom near the school chapel, Slewfoot Sue smokes pot from a 20-ounce Coca-Cola bottle she's deftly fashioned into a waterfall gravity bong with the aid of a how-to video on YouTube. Gravity, in this case a misnomer, as the bong operates under the physics of suction, the same physics that propels the lonesome wind, high pressure to low pressure, water spilling into the toilet bowl through a small hole burned into the bottom of the coke bottle, smoke pulled into the partial vacuum created by the water's hasty retreat. Sue, only a B-minus student in physics, but the bong a brilliant application of Newtonian principles, practical science, theory come alive. Once the water is gone and the coke bottle is cloudy with smoke, Sue plugs the burned out hole with her finger, unscrews the cap, and takes a hit, the smoke flooding out the lip of the bottle into Sue's mouth down her trachea and bronchial tubes into her lungs. Biology now, respiratory mechanisms, epithelium, motile cilia, the exchange of gases between alveoli and blood, Sue exhaling into a toilet paper tube packed with floral scented dryer sheets, the telltale pungency of high-grade marijuana transformed into a bouquet of lilacs and lilies of the valley. The bathroom, originally built for exclusive use by the Dominican Sisters of Hope who taught theology classes in the remote hallway leading to the chapel, where Slewfoot Sue attends mass along with the rest of her classmates every Friday morning. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, Amen. The bathroom, long since open to the student body and enjoying a new life as the favorite haunt of Holy Cross's most insatiable and incorrigible substance abusers. Sue closing her eyes. A lesson now in neurochemistry, CP1 receptors, the amygdala, the hippocampus, the basal ganglia, THC. Sue's first joint at the age of 12 in an all-girls character-building summer camp in Corpus Christi, her current stash procured from the bass player in her cousin's roots reggae band, Cotton Eye Jaw, 
who recently opened for one of the lesser Marley children at an outdoor festival on the same fairgrounds where Sue's mom used to promote beef consumption as Miss Texas Angus. Sue's eyes still closed, seeing stars, astronomy, Orion's belt, Polaris, the Pleiades, Ursa Major and Minor. The bell rings and Sue opens her eyes, returns to Earth, shoves the bong behind loose homework assignments and three-ring binders in her backpack and sprays a halo of air freshener in her stall as an extra precaution. The janitors, never suspicious of excessive aerosol citrus in the girls' restrooms, Sue undoing the stall latch and joining the other girls in mandatory polos and plaid in front of the mirrors, the silent theater of lipstick application, hair adjustment, bosom assessment, blemish concealment, aesthetic self-evaluation. Sue frowns at her bangs, adjusts a bra strap, checks her eyes for redness, frowns at her bangs again. The bell rings a second time, passing period over, class officially begun, and Sue's classmates leave the mirrors and hurry out to the hallway, but Sue remains, staring at her bangs, contemplating their atomic makeup, protons, neutrons, quarks, dark matter, the uncertainty principle. You can know where you are, or you can know where you're going, or is it you can know where you were, or you can know when you're gone, or is it you can know if you are, or you can know if you'll go. A toilet flushes by itself for no discernible reason, and Sue withdraws from the subatomic realm and applies two drops of visine to each of her eyes and frowns one last time in her bangs before striding out the door and struggling to remember the location and subject of her next class. The air freshener bottle says its fragrance smells like meadows and rain. I was on the same side holding on Moving on some bus just
its famous walls, vulnerable only to the shrill assault of Israeli trumpets, Our Lady of the Holy Cross is well secured. An eight-foot-tall fence surrounds the campus. Surveillance cameras monitor the classrooms and hallways and stairwells for impropriety. Security guards and golf carts scrutinize student IDs and visitors' passes and keep an eye on the Lexuses and BMWs and Mercedes in the parking lot. In addition to the small army of hall monitors and security guards, there is a police officer on staff, his office between a Spanish classroom and a custodial closet. Due to the thinness of the school's drywall, the police officer has picked up a modicum of conversational Spanish during his five-year tenure at Holy Cross. Como estas? Estoy muy bien. No es un bolígrafo. And the Spanish 1 and 2 students have always been the first to learn of campus drug busts and bomb threats and sex scandals. The chatter on the police officer's radio, a constant companion to verb conjugations and songs about the alphabet and days of the week and types of weather. On the other side of the school, in the administrative wing, clerical assistants, bursars, grade-level principals, substitute coordinators, registrars. Johnny Appleseed sits shoeless in a padded chair in the Dean of Students' office. Maple bookshelves, framed diplomas, three-ring binders, motivational posters featuring dolphins leaping out of the Atlantic and cats hanging from tree limbs by one paw. The Dean of Students and Johnny Appleseed are well acquainted. Despite the always transgressive nature of their meetings, they share a certain rapport. While in the waiting area outside, Johnny had folded his pink uniform violation into an origami crane, and he offers it to the dean, who thanks him and places the crane on her desk next to a photo of her youngest daughter on the lap of a suspiciously fit Santa Claus. The school dress code is really not that complicated, says the dean of students. She is in her early 40s, attractive, looks more like the woman excited about stainless steel cutlery late at night on TV than a stereotypical school administrator. No frown lines, no Kissinger glasses, no ill-advised pantsuits. You should see some of the dress codes at the other Catholic prep schools, she continues. Shirt collar advisories, stitching requirements, restrictions on polyester, nuns with metric rulers, measuring skirt lengths and necklines to the nearest millimeter. And besides, the issue here is so elemental it's printed in Helvetica on the front of every Circle K and Quick Trip and 7-Eleven. No shirt, no shoes, no service. Outside the dean's window, a security guard drives by in a golf cart, the guard whistling the Phrygian section of Ravel's bolero. 
the security personnel at Holy Cross all comprehensively vetted background checks, credit checks, drug tests, physicals, 30-page questionnaires, timed 40-yard dashes and shuttle runs, the security guards at Lone Star High, all former students, carrying walkie-talkies and detention slips and office referral forms and becoming everything they once hated for the minimum wage. Everyone else wears shoes, says the dean, your classmates, your teachers, the cafeteria workers, the custodial staff, the sturdy Mexicans who mow lawns and trim our hedges. Your own sister wears shoes. I know you can afford them. You're not here on a need-based scholarship. Between the two of you, your parents pay a combined $50,000 a year. No medical conditions to speak of on your file. No history of bunions, plantar fasciitis, pigeon toes, amphibious webbing. So what I'm trying to understand is, what is the problem here? Do you have difficulty tying shoelaces? There are plenty of attractive models available in Velcro. Do you have problem arches? There are untold manufacturers of therapeutic supports and replaceable inserts. Just tell me what you need. I'm here to help you. I am ever at your disposal. Johnny Appleseed shifts in his chair, fidgets with his hands, digs his toes into the office carpeting. His feet are impressively calloused. He can walk on cracked masonry and nails and broken glass and suffer nary a scratch. The thing is, says Johnny Appleseed, that greenhouse gas emissions are increasing exponentially Chlorofluorocarbons are burning a 10 million square mile hole in the ozone layer. Global sea temperatures are rising. The ice caps are receding. Fresh water is dwindling. Arable land is turning to desert. Hundreds of millions of people are homeless and diseased and starving. The earth is choking out its last dying breath. And yet we're sitting here you and me, in your incandescent-lit, motivational-postered, over-air-conditioned office, and we're talking about why I'm not wearing any shoes. Johnny avoids eye contact with the dean, looks instead at the posters, the pebbled beaches, the soccer teammates celebrating a goal, the bald eagle soaring above low stratus. The dean glances out the window and sees a guard drive by, whistling the love theme from Flashdance. In Spanish 1, the students hear a staticky police radio report of inappropriate student conduct in an English department resource room, and the police officer hears lunes, martes, miércoles, jueves. In American history, Jenny Appleseed takes notes using the Cornell method as her teacher lectures about westward expansion, Manifest Destiny, Sitting Bull, Custer's Last Stand, I Will Fight No More, Forever.
miles away at a Lone Star High, Paul Bunyan, in an ill-fitting t-shirt and mesh shorts, stands with his back to the gymnasium wall and awaits his teacher's whistle, which will signal the commencement of a mad suicidal sprint toward a line of yellow dodgeballs, though Paul himself will not sprint. He has developed, over the years, a keen recognition of futility. The futility of an 8'6", 450-pound, 17-year-old lumbering toward a row of rusting dodgeballs. The futility of shaving a razored-clean face in the morning, a full beard by mid-afternoon. The futility of pursuing girls, these tremendous girls with their spandex shorts and slightly visible sports bras and tensed calf muscles, waiting to spring into action at the teacher's whistle and bombard Paul mercilessly with rubber spheres. The futility of finding a proper fitting t-shirt. The futility of attempting to defy futility. The coaches all have their eyes on Paul, of course. The basketball coach fantasizing about Paul swatting away layups and jump shots in the low post. The volleyball coach drooling over Paul's wandering albatross wingspan. The football coach telling his defensive coordinator there's this kid in his gym class with thighs the size of beer kegs and forearms the size of Easter hams. But Paul has no interest in organized sports. He has read about the early deaths of famous tall men, 8'2 Bernard Coyne dying at the age of 24 from a hardened liver, 8'3 Edouard Boupre succumbing at 23 to tuberculosis, 8'11 Robert Wadlow kicking the bucket at 22 due to an infected blister, and thus worries constantly about his health. Paul in the school nurse's office daily, complaining of shortness of breath, heart palpitations, swollen lymph nodes, digital numbness, intestinal discomfort. The nurse assuring Paul that nothing is wrong with him, Paul returning to class certain that everything is wrong with him. The gym teacher blows his whistle, and Paul's classmates dash toward the dodgeballs, their ammunition, the means of their victory or their own destruction. Paul, meanwhile, remains with his back to the wall, his t-shirt soaked with sweat, his thick beard leaking perspiration onto the gym floor like a faulty air conditioner. He thinks he may be suffering from heat stroke and asks the teacher if he can go to the nurse's office. But his teacher does not hear him, the clipboard carrying Coach's eyes sparkling as he watches the first barrage of dodgeballs fly through the air, listens to the rodentile squeak of tennis shoes against the parquet floor, hears the first beautiful impact of skin versus vulcanized rubber. Our Lady of the Holy Cross, Slufat Sue is passed a note during theology. 
It's an invitation. Varsity lacrosse co-captain Drew Osweiler's parents are out of town for the weekend. Kegs have been requisitioned. Hard substances have been procured. The jacuzzi has been shock-treated with potassium monopersulfate. Sue crumples up the note and drops it beneath her desk. She knows what goes on at those parties. Rich white boys and girls getting smashed and listening to bad hip-hop and going at it in walk-in closets and laundry rooms and on weight training equipment. Sue's teacher discussing St. Thomas Aquinas's five proofs for the existence of God. There is an unmoved mover. There is a first efficient cause. There is an ultimate standard of perfection. Sue knows the boys want her. She sees the way they look at her, notices the subtle changes in their voices and their body language when they speak to her, is aware of the stories they fabricate in the cafeteria and on the practice fields and in the locker room. Sue and Phil Rosewood in the restroom of a Texas roadhouse. Sue and Derek Strongholm in the sauna at his parents' lake cabin. Sue in the back seat of Gus Stanfield's Range Rover. Aquinas saying that everything in the universe has a purpose, that things may either exist or not exist, that there must be an uncaused cause of all that is caused. Sue not attracted to a single boy at her school. Their protein shakes, their trust funds, their faux hawks, their ironic urban slang, their body spray, their puka shell necklaces. Everything about them just makes her whatever the opposite of hot and bothered is, frigid and undisturbed. She could easily get top-notch weed completely free from them too, but instead only buys from the bass player in Cotton Eye Jaw, who is always far too high to put the moves on her, their transactions short, sweet, and simple. Aquinas saying that immaterial being is more perfect than material being, that God is simple, infinite, immutable, and eternal, that that which has the possibility of not being at some time is not. Sue closes her eyes and imagines herself at home in her bathroom, the shower on, steam clouding the mirror, a damp towel laid against the bottom of the door, Sue lying on her back on the fuzzy pink carpet in front of the toilet, smoke in her lungs, pipe in her mouth, stars in her eyes. Rusty Friederson stares at Slewfoot Sue's legs and imagines them wrapped around him as he lies on the beanbag chair next to the foosball table in his rec room. St. Thomas Aquinas says that some things are moved, that some real things are generated and corrupted, that there is something intelligent that orders all natural things to an end.
Carol, Pecos Bill is supposed to be in chemistry, but Bill is not in chemistry. Instead, he's in Widowmaker, the windows down, Marlboro in hand, the radio playing everyone's favorite hits of the 80s, 90s, and today. Who could think about covalent bonds and Niels Bohr and the formula for average atomic mass on a day like this? The flares of sun hitting polished chrome, the technicolor musical blue sky, the shirtless hustlers playing alleyway basketball, the corner girls leaning against broken parking meters and cut off denim, the vendedores ambulantes pushing carts full of plantains, cantaloupe, watermelon, poinsettias, pirated DVDs. Bill pulls up alongside a Camaro with racing stripes, a chrome grill, and a custom rear spoiler, and the Camaro's engine greets him at the stoplight with a deep, throaty growl. Bill doesn't even bother to look at the Camaro's driver. The light turns green and Bill floors it, tires screaming, VTEC roaring, Widowmaker weaving between lanes and disregarding stop signs and darting into and out of the way of oncoming traffic. The chorus of car horns, the diving pedestrians, the barber shops and liquor stores and abandoned weedy lots, a continuous peripheral blur as Bill accelerates through the bottom of the barrel's narrow streets, not once checking his rearview mirror to see how close the Camaro is behind him, to check if the Camaro is even following him. Bill racing not against the Camaro, but against compliance and propriety common sense. In five minutes, he's on the highway, tearing past semis with pictures of coconut water and domestic beers on their trailers, 80, 90, 100, out into the desert where the prickly pears grow and the dust devils dance and the coyotes live, Bill sticking his head out the window and interrupting everyone's favorite hits of the 80s, 90s, and today with a manic, life-affirming howl as his classmates sit in an unair-conditioned room in the bottom of the barrel and learn about the promiscuity of electrons, the uncertainty of matter, the order and disorder of isolated systems. You seem like
Friday night and the air is thick with the promise of something indefinable. The young feel it but don't know what it's called. The old might name it but no longer know it's there. Slufutsu senses it as she puts on mascara and murder red lipstick in front of her bathroom mirror. Jenny Appleseed feels it as she compulsively checks her cell phone hidden beneath the table during family dinner. Pecos Bill tastes it as he sticks his head out the driver's side window doing 50 in a 25. Paul Bunyan is saddened by it as he watches bad primetime television with his mother and four younger sisters in his living room, knows that whatever it is, whatever its name, it is something he will never possess. At the Appleseed dinner table, Mrs. A's famous meatloaf is the main attraction. Worcestershire sauce, breadcrumbs, yellow onions, ground chuck. Johnny is vegan and nibbles alternatively on unbuttered corn on the cob as the rest of the family digs into the meatloaf and devours garlic cheese bread and knocks back tall glasses of 2% milk. Where did we go wrong with him? thinks Mr. Appleseed, watching Johnny peck away at his sweet corn like some nervous urban bird. Won't play sports. Won't wear shoes. Born and raised in cattle country and won't even look at a hamburger. How did he and Jenny turn out so differently? They came out bloody and crying, one after the other, and had never been close since. I ran into Penny Weatherton's mother at the supermarket yesterday, says Mrs. Appleseed. The clink of silverware, the audible chewing, the convective blowing on piping hot cheese bread. She said Penny is just loving the chess club. You remember Penny. Sweet girl. So smart. Prettiest blue eyes. Have you ever thought about joining the chess club, Johnny? China's carbon emissions are projected to rise by 496% by 2020, says Johnny Appleseed. Your mother asked you a question, Johnny, says Johnny's father, chin smeared with Worcestershire sauce. I just think it would be good for you, says Mrs. A, to get involved more with, you know, other people. India's by 350%. Johnny, having finished off the corn kernels, now absent-mindedly chews on the tough, inedible cob. Or what about the fall musical? The Music Man. You remember when we took you and Jenny to the Music Man when you were in fifth grade? You have such a nice singing voice, too. I ran into Billy Millmuffin's mother at Costco, and she said the auditions are next Wednesday. Harold Hill, Mary and the Librarian. You remember Gary and Deanna, Johnny. You remember 76 trombones, mass extinctions, global crop failure, devastating storms. You're trying out for the basketball team this year and that's it, bellows Mr. Appleseed. The passing of ceramics, the pouring of cold beverages, the rattle of ice. 
Jenny Appleseed, meanwhile, still chucking her cell phone discreetly beneath the dinner table. Her boyfriend, Cliff Desmond, said he'd text, he'd call, but it's already seven o'clock and still nothing, nothing but the emoticon wink he'd sent her last Friday. How many times she has stared at that taunting parenthesis and semicolon in class, in the cafeteria, during French club, in the bathroom, in bed, waking and compulsively checking for new messages in the middle of the night. Not that he's her boyfriend, exactly, at least he's never verbalized himself as such, but after what happened last weekend in his land cruiser, he's certainly more than just a boy, more than just a friend. Obviously, he likes her. He has to, doesn't he? You don't do the things he did to her in the land cruiser unless you like someone, really like them. Boys don't just do that to anyone, do they? Maybe the one thing, but not the other things. Afterwards, he was he was so sweet afterwards, but it's seven o'clock and still nothing. Nothing but that stupid weak old parenthesis. Nothing but that goddamn semicolon. I ran into Chelsea Brittingham's mother at Whole Foods, says Mrs. Appleseed. Pandemic disease, says Johnny. Crippling drought. Coastal metropolises underwater. Nine billion people with no future no hope. You remember Chelsea Brittingham. You were in kindergarten together. I'll tell you one thing about the Chinese, says Johnny's father. Hell of a work ethic. Hell of a work ethic. The dry mouth. The sweating palms. The anxious grasp. The interminable waiting for vibration. Bunyan apartment, 7 p.m. on a Friday, means pregnant teen motorhome. Six expectant girls between the ages of 16 and 19 traveling across America in a 45-foot-long Winnebago. Weekly challenges, $100,000 grand prize. Paul Bunyan lies on his mattress on the living room floor and his mother and sisters sit in plastic folding chairs stolen from an ice cream social at a nearby Episcopalian church and the entire family watches second trimester Kendra pump a hundred dollars worth of regular unleaded instead of diesel, first trimester Cami flash a busload of Korean tourists at an Albuquerque Shoney's, third trimester Lana sob into a pillow after her boyfriend Snake breaks up with her via Facebook Messenger. Each member of the Bunyan family rooting for a different cast member. Paul's mother pulling for Mississippi-born Capri son guzzling Kamika. Paul's oldest sister cheering on foul-mouthed, frequently topless Cami. Paul's youngest sister supporting native Texan Destiny, who is unable to drive the Winnebago because her feet don't reach the pedals. Paul's favorite pregnant teen was Cheryl, the quietest and sweetest of the girls. Her voice tinged with a subtle sadness whenever she spoke to the camera in her taped confessionals, a sadness more authentic and 
moving and familiar than the histrionic rants and sobs and emotional breakdowns of her fellow cast members. Paul actually felt sometimes like she was talking not to the camera, but to him, was conveying to him deep and personal truths, somehow understood intimately his loneliness and isolation and frustration, even thought about going on the show's website and seeing if it was possible to send Cheryl a letter or an email, but then in the last episode she was accused of flirting with Kendra's baby daddy at a Phoenix Dave and Busters, and despite her adamant denials, was unanimously voted off, left behind at an interstate Texaco 30 miles outside of Flagstaff. The baby daddies aren't presented in the best light on pregnant teen motorhome, skinny high school dropouts with misspelled tattoos, convicted felons with ankle monitors, middle-aged men with pregnant teen daughters of their own. Paul thinks about his own father, wonders if he ever watches pregnant teen motorhome. His father, an avid sports fan, football, basketball, baseball, hockey, strongman competitions, golf, but known to watch reality television every so often with the aid of an American spirit and a six-pack of natty ice. Paul and his sisters haven't spoken to their father since Paul was seven foot ten, still moving freely about the apartment with orthopedically acceptable posture. Child support payments come sporadically, a Christmas card in an envelope with no return address generally appears in February or March, roughly every other year. Except for sweet, voted-off Cheryl, all the pregnant teens are catty, moody, manipulative, vindictive, and cruel, yet Paul is still attracted to them sexually. He is embarrassed by this attraction, just as he is embarrassed by his lust for the similarly catty and cruel classmates of his at Lone Star High, but he is unable to shake these feelings, these fantasies, is incapable of shutting off whatever sick, twisted sector of his brain has been projecting grainy, laughably plotted skin flicks 24-7 ever since he first glanced down Daphne Flanagan's shirt in the seventh grade. What a nightmare it is to be eight foot six and without privacy and constantly horny. The bathroom is only real refuge for self-pleasure, but he has to hunch over uncomfortably in the shower and his sisters are always banging on the door right as he's about to climax and the hot water runs out quick. And how sad he feels afterwards, knowing the only time these acts will ever transpire will be when he's dreaming them up in the shower, spine bent, fist clenched, limbs contorted, grunts stifled, head banging against the ceiling during moments of particular excitement. Paul, never unusually tall in his fantasies, or maybe he's tall but the girls are also tall. At either rate, the involved parties are always well proportioned, 
no danger of Paul crushing them or hurting them or eliciting their disgust or derision. When I say I need a big gulp, I f***ing need a big gulp, says Cammie to the camera, her words intermittently masked by a pure one kilohertz tone. But the other girls don't understand. No one understands me. No one f***ing understands. Half a mile from the Bunyan's apartment, Slewfoot Sue waits in line outside the Crocodilo Club, a venerable bottom-of-the-barrel dive that has survived a tornado, two fires, three armed robberies, innumerable near foreclosures, and a carjacked stretch party limo crashing through its eastern wall at 2.30 in the morning. Sue, not the only suburban girl, queuing along the litter-inundated sidewalk with keychain pepper spray and a fake ID. The bottom of the barrel, the only neighborhood within a 50-mile radius where a girl can drink without being hit on by packs of artificially fragrant men and tight-fitting polos and see live music without constantly being reminded that the performers are available for birthdays, weddings, bar and bat mitzvahs, and corporate events. The headliner tonight, a garage rock band out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, called Snort Patrol, whose concert poster features a drawing of a voluptuous 50s pinup biting to the head of a live octopus. The Crocodilo Club's parking lot, crawling with vagrants, men with involuntary twitches, men with Old Testament beards, men with traffic orange vests demanding $15 from club patrons exiting their cars, nameless men, men without IDs or pasts, who knows where they come from, who knows where they go, after the glitter-eyed girls and steel-booted boys return to Sandpiper Terrace, Oriole Canyon, Blackbird Haven, Mockingbird Grove. Sue's fake ID easily passes muster with the 300-pound muscle-shirted doorman, and a moment later, she's inside the club. Beer-stained floors, cigarette haze, bartenders with creative piercings, subwoofer thumps. Sue here alone, her best friend Jenny both mooning over some guy and unwilling to try and use the international student identity card Sue recently bought off an exchange student returning to Denmark. The student a dead ringer for Jenny too if you squinted a little and didn't scrutinize their eye colors. But Jenny arguing that bars never accept international student cards. In fact, the more xenophobic doorman won't even take passports. So Sue was out 75 bucks for the identity of a useless Dane and had driven her daddy's Ford Explorer to the club by herself. Traveling from Merganser Landings to the bottom of the barrel with the aid of onboard GPS, a pleasant British woman directing her to turn right or left as she smoked the last eighth of the cotton eye jaw basis pot and then smoked several Lucky Strike Reds, her daddy's favorite brand, so that the explorer retained its natural aroma of tobacco and ash. 
the opening band, whose name Sue doesn't remember, has already performed the club's PA playing early blood, sweat, and tears, presumably, ironically, as Sue squeezes past girls and off-the-shoulder tees and neon fishnets and shiny lame leggings in a slow, sweaty approach toward the front of the stage. Sue, glad to be here and not at Drew Osweiler's, playing beer pong, drinking from red plastic cups, being led up a staircase by the coked-up son of a real estate developer, Our Lady of the Holy Cross. Sue loves attending Friday morning mass in the school chapel, blitzed out of her mind, it goes without saying, watching all her classmates recite the Kyrie eleison and the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed, hands folded, eyes closed, the picture of piety, the priest blessing them and sanctifying them and placing Christ's body in their open palms, the teachers and Dominican Sisters of Hope grasping their hands during the sign of peace, everyone singing Ave Maria and morning has broken and were you there when they crucified my Lord? And Sue thinking the whole time how in just 13 or 14 hours these same pious teenagers genuflecting and mouthing our Father who art in heaven and lowering themselves onto cushioned kneelers will be drinking themselves horizontal in the rec rooms of their vacationing parents and inhaling and ingesting controlled substances and performing sex acts there aren't even widely accepted names for and it's all Sue can do not to laugh out loud. In fact, sometimes she can't help it. She sees Marianne Reinhardt, who, like some stripper Cinderella, has never made it to midnight at a party without taking her shirt off, say the glory be, or Sonny Pillerton, who has a collection of panties and thongs stolen from every girl who has ever let him into her bedroom, sing the responsorial psalm, and she bursts into hysterics, her teachers shushing her, the sisters of hope glaring at her, the priest trying to ignore her and continue with the service as best he can, but nothing can stop her, and she has to shove her way past her classmates awkwardly in the pew and leave the chapel, laughing so hard she's crying by the time she pushes open the chapel's heavy oak doors, tears streaming down her face as she enters the bathroom and locks herself in a stall, sits on the toilet and puts her head between her knees and cries herself to exhaustion, and just when she's finally shed her last tear, she thinks of the call her parents will receive that afternoon from a teacher or a sister or maybe even the dean, and she starts laughing again, crying again, crying until it hurts, and she stays in the locked stall for a good 30 minutes until she's ready to re-enter the outside world and return to class. Snort Patrol goes on at 11.45 and plays a blistering 30-minute set, the drummer speaking in tongues into his floor tom mic, the singer flailing around the stage as if possessed by a tent revival demon, 
the bassist drunkenly making out with audience members of both and indeterminate genders, and then midway into a song about having group sex in a lawn crypt, the guitarist abruptly smashes his Stratocaster against the stage floor and walks off, and the show is over, blood, sweat, and tears coming back on the club PA, the audience looking at the shattered Strat and each other in a shell-shocked daze. Slewfoot Sue lets a middle-aged man in a green and purple zoot suit buy her a drink and then walks outside before the bartender finishes pouring it, hums the chorus of a snort patrol song and then a tiny fragment of blood, sweat, and tears as she passes two orange-vested vagrants and enters the dirt parking lot in search of her daddy's explorer. The Explorer's not where she left it, though. In fact, it doesn't appear to be anywhere at all. Sue circumnavigates the parking lot two, three, four times, and still no trace of the silver SUV, Bush Cheney bumper sticker, several years worth of expired parking decals, vanity license plate, Fisher King, Sue's stomach tightening, her heart palpitating, her breaths short and labored. After the fifth frantic, fruitless tour of the parking lot, Sue collapses onto the dusty ground and covers her face with her hands and cries. How she cries, this crying driven not by hysteria and chemicals and absurdity like in the Holy Cross bathroom, but by powerlessness and fear. Fear not just of the consequences of the missing car, of how she's gonna get home, of how she's gonna absorb her daddy's wrath, but of the existential implications of something being there one moment and then not being there the next. What an awful feeling, searching futilely for something that isn't there. Breathing very difficult now, Sue hyperventilating, flashbacks to asthma attacks she suffered as a small child. She remains fetal on the dusty ground, gasps for air, digs her fingernails into her scalp, rocks back and forth, and at some point a hand touches her shoulder and a young man's voice asks if she's okay. Sue doesn't respond, keeps rocking and gasping, and the man squeezes her shoulder and this time doesn't ask her, but tells her, she's okay, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay, and he does this for quite a while, until Sue finally regains normal breathing, quits rocking, removes her hands from her face, and turns sees for the first time Pecos Bill looking down at her, repeating like some eastern mantra, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. What happened to you, darling? This is Bill, cowhide vest, snakeskin boots, Texas-shaped belt buckle, chaps. My car, says Sue, must hair dust-covered leggings, raccoon-smeared mascara, quivering lip. I can give you a ride home, says Bill. Whereabouts you live? 
sorry, says Sue, but I don't know you. Right. You got a cell phone? Of course you got a cell phone. Let me give you a number for a cab. The cab arrives 15 minutes later. In the idle time beforehand, Bill stays with Sue in the parking lot and talks to her about Widowmaker, tells her how he bought her off a meth fiend for $500, how he designed the flame decals himself, how he swapped out the original engine for a D16Y8 he turbocharged up to 280 horsepower, Patera pistons, Eagle rods, new injectors, intercooler, conversion to Uberdata EMS, Bill's jargon possessing a soothing quality, Sue letting the unfamiliar terms wash over her pleasantly the way a non-French speaker might hear Baudelaire's poetry or a non-Portuguese speaker might become entranced by the songs of Antonio Carlos Jobim. Then the cab comes and Bill opens the door for her and says, do you have any money? Of course you have money. And right before closing the door, he says, what's your name, darling? And Sue says, Sue. The door closes. Bill waves. The cab driver asks Sue where to, and she gives him her address. And 35 minutes later, after she's left the bottom of the barrel for on-ramps and off-ramps and leafy suburban boulevards, she's there. A kind of magic, a cab, when she thinks about it. You just say the name and close your eyes, and you're there. The times are getting rough, and there's nowhere left to hide. When the lights are going dim, in your disbelieving eyes These exotic melodies Will come drifting back to you The fabric of your dream I'll be there with you slip away When the years blur into fog And you cannot find your way If ever you're afraid
up from chemically aided slumber to a series of short, sharp knocks on her front door. She tries to go back to sleep, defers responsibility of receiving the unknown visitor to her mom, but the knocks keep coming, rap, 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 and then she remembers her mom and daddy are in Dallas for the weekend, something fried fish related banquets, speeches, plaques, and precision timepieces for obliterated sales goals and decades of loyal service, her daddy still none the wiser about his AWOL explorer missing in action somewhere in the chain-linked wilds of the bottom of the barrel. Rap. 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 These are not the knocks of a salesman or Jehovah's Witness or college kid inquiring, could you spare a minute for the environment? Who could it be? The cops? Sue, careful with her law-breaking, but still always nervous around the city's finest, won't look them in the eye, won't watch cop shows on TV, holds her breath when driving past police cars like she and Jenny used to do and Sue's mom drove them over railroad tracks and past the eternal lawn cemetery. Rap. 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 Sue rouses herself out of bed and throws on a t-shirt with an Andy Warhol-esque screen print of four dichromatic Clint Eastwoods circa the good, the bad, and the ugly. Sue read somewhere that Clint Eastwood was briefly the mayor of some small town in California and likes to envision Eastwood at a city hall forum in Spurs and a Stetson telling some neighborhood activist complaining about proposed changes to a mixed-use zoning ordinance to make his day. Sue at her window now, peeking through the blinds. Rap. 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 Who's responsible for rusting her away from the edgeless, gauzy comfort of her pharmaceutical dreams? The culprits still on her front porch, banging away, the ten-gallon hat obscuring his features. Sue can't see his face, but she sees the car he's parked in her driveway, the familiar silver, the familiar license plate, and beaded seat covers and parking decals, her daddy's Ford Explorer, just say its name, and it's there. Hey, says Sue, 
opening her window and calling to the persistent stranger below. Hey there, darling, he says, looking up at her, the tilt of his hat revealing his face. Out of a dream into a dream, Sue leans out her window and stares at the explorer and at the young man who comforted her in the Crocodilo Club parking lot the previous night and doesn't have the faintest idea what to say. Has it always pulled slightly to the left? asks Bill. Same vest, same chaps, same Texas-shaped belt buckle. Sorry, says Sue. The car, when you take your hands off the steering wheel, has it always veered slightly to the left? Sue, conscious of last night's leggings lying crumpled at her feet, blushes, senses that Bill somehow knows that below the Clint Eastwoods there's just a thin strip of cotton and a vast expanse of skin, even though he can't possibly see below her abdomen from his vantage point on the porch. Uh, um, yeah, I, I guess, she says. All right, so it wasn't them who messed up the alignment then, says Bill. Other than that, the hot wire job, everything seems to be in good order. Had to clean some paraphernalia out of the back seat, of course, but transmission's good, engine's real smooth, stereo system sounds like a dream. You report to the cops yet? No, says Sue. Hates donuts, can't stand the sound of sirens, won't ride in a Crown Victoria, has a visceral aversion to the color blue. How did you find me? She says. We have a mutual business contact. Bill, no doubt speaking of Sue's dealer, the Roots reggae bassist, who lives just outside the bottom of the barrel in a neighborhood they call the Lost and Found. Not too many pretty red-headed Sues modern over to our neck of the woods from the suburbs, says Bill. Didn't take Sherlock Holmes or Inspector What's-His-Name to find your home address. Gadget, says Sue. Bill fidgets with the brim of his hat. Which one is he? Gogo Gadget, Dog Sidekick, Genius Niece, Hat Sprouts Propellers, Legs Extend Over Cars. Nope, says Bill. That doesn't sound right. Hat Sprouts Propellers? I don't think that's the one. Sue leans out the window further, feels the warmth of the sun on her skin, the shadows elongating below. The afternoon is morning. Sue wonders if maybe she should put on the rest of her clothing and go downstairs and talk to Bill face to face. If maybe she should go downstairs and talk to Bill as is. But she decides she prefers chatting with Bill from her bedroom window, likes the allure of distance, possessing the high ground, sequestered away like Rapunzel, air-to-surface conversation from her lonely, impenetrable tower. She could grow her hair out. The boys just can't get enough of a redhead. She looks down at Bill, looking up at her, and wonders if he's the one she wants to climb her auburn locks, and tries to remember what happens to Rapunzel in the end, recalls the prince or knight or whoever he is scaling Rapunzel's golden braids, breaking into the prison, winning the long-haired captive's love, but forgets how they get down, can't decipher how the two of them break out.
Paul Bunyan at the Big and Tall Man's warehouse. Big and tall men trying on sweaters, slacks, dress shirts, golf shirts, tuxedos, relaxed fit jeans. Big and tall doesn't even describe it. Men who set off alarms in elevators. Men with forehead bruises from ceiling fans and chandeliers. Men who avoid revolving doors and folding chairs. Who bankrupt all-you-can-eat buffets. Who get charged for two seats on domestic flights. Sales associates trained not to stare or judge. Armed with tape measures. Names engraved on rectangular badges. Asked, does this come in a 52-inch waist? Are vertical or horizontal lines the ones that are slimming? How elastic is the elastic? Is there a quadruple or quintuple XL? Paul combs through the racks, the shelves, the displays, struggles to find a pair of pants in his size. Men who buy moon pies by the gross. Men who consider big gulps merely gulps. Men who as children were called lardy, porky, butterball, bubba, bigfoot, double wide, the space needle, jabba the hut. A sales associate telling Paul he doesn't think they have anything, but if Paul wants, he can check the back. The big and tall men all shopping alone. No wives, no girlfriends, no boyfriends. If there's a lonelier place to buy suit jackets and pleated pants, Paul would like to see it. Men whom prostitutes charge extra baggage fees. Men who visit psychiatrists and have to lie down on the floor. Paul says, no, that's okay. Don't bother checking the back. The cashier girl whom Paul will guiltily conjure later that evening during a far too brief postprandial shower, trained not to gawk as Paul lumbers sadly past the comparatively dwarfish mannequins and literally ducks out the door. Johnny Appleseed, back in the dean's office, shoeless, of course, but written up by his statistics teacher for an unrelated offense, Johnny's office referral form folded into a stellated dodecahedron, the dean complimenting Johnny on the dodecahedron's craftsmanship and then apologizing as she unfolded the 12 faced star in order to familiarize herself with Johnny's latest breach of school protocol. So you told Mr. Cedarberg that you refused to find the mean, median, and mode of a stem and leaf plot out of principle, says the dean. That is correct, says Johnny Appleseed. And what principle is that? It's hard to articulate verbally, says Johnny. The office referral form, just one of 30 pieces of the dodecahedron, the rest of the intricate origami construction composed of never-completed worksheets, take-home quizzes, syllabi, a field trip permission form, numerous detention slips, and academic alerts. 
It says here you told Mr. Cedarberg that the entire field of statistics is now irrelevant, says the dean. It says you told him, and this is in quotations on the referral form, your existence, meaning, I assume, Mr. Cedarberg's, is a pitiful cosmic joke. That is correct, Johnny says. The dean clears her throat and shifts her gaze to a motivational poster featuring a family of sea turtles crawling across the sand toward the ocean and sticks the back end of a pen into the corner of her mouth, an unconscious habit since elementary school. Her mother used to hit her for it, well into high school, would slap the pen right out of her daughter's lips, but she's the dean now, full benefits, pension, parking space, name included on official school letterhead, so you mother, I'll stick my pen any place I want. Now why would you say something like that, I wonder, says the dean, gently. What about me? Do you think the field of secondary educational administration is irrelevant? Do you think my life is a pitiful cosmic joke? It's nothing personal, says Johnny. He grabs one of the sharply folded pieces of the former dodecahedron and fashions it to the bulb of a rose. On the other side of the school, Jenny sits in British lit and contemplates an unsent text message she's composed on her phone. What's up, it says, followed by a smiley face. The question, of course, whether or not to include the smiley face, does it enhance or detract from her primary message? What's up? The smiley face on the one hand indicating no hard feelings about not being texted over the weekend, not being called. She's still happy. Boys like happy girls, don't they? The pretty girls in TV commercials all so impossibly and effervescently happy about hand lotion, dishwasher detergent, frozen yogurt, prescription medication for yeast infections. But then again, he could find the smiley face annoying. Certainly it can be overdone. A desperation to the smiley face. I am happy. I am happy. I am happy. And not to mention what's up might be better articulated as how's it going? Or how are you? Or simply sup. If he hasn't called, it means he wants her, right? He wants her to think he doesn't want her, so she'll only want him more. You have to understand, says Johnny to the Dean, that the damage we have inflicted on this planet is irreversible. There are no multiple choices. There is no A, B, C, D. Nine billion people by 2050 fossil fuels completely gone by the end of the century, the air noxious, our water poisoned, our food laced with antidepressants and carcinogens, and he asks me, what is the mean? What is the median? How is that not a joke? It's statistics, Johnny, says the dean, mathematics, hard science, focused not just on problems, but also their solutions. But sometimes there isn't a solution, says Johnny. There's always a solution. 
Jenny wondering if an exclamation point should be deployed instead of a question mark, if a smiley face would be more or less effective than a wink, if sup should be spelled with an apostrophe before the S, not if you divide by zero, says Johnny, then don't divide by zero, says the dean. Jenny deleting the smiley face, rewriting the smiley face, deleting the smiley face. X equals all real numbers from negative infinity to infinity, but why only real numbers? Why only two infinities? How's it going? How are you? What is up? Are you terrified of what you got? Maybe tearing you apart. We are always here inside, inside of your mind. Take a letter and a souvenir. Take a picnic in the park. Not the kind of people who end up in the magazine. Friday evening, Pecos Bill parks Widowmaker one block away from Sue's house, everyone's favorite hits of the 80s, 90s, and today playing on his stereo as he waits for Sue to tell her daddy she's walking over to Jenny's. Sue awfully dressed up for a quiet evening at the Appleseeds, but her daddy not suspicious. The Rangers game on. Sue's daddy saying, tell Mr. and Mrs. Appleseed I say hi, as his eyes remained fixed on the swinging, spitting men on the screen. Sue steps out into the street and walks toward the Appleseed's cul-de-sac and finds Bill out of the Civic, holding the door open for her, country-western gentleman. You would never know he was raised by coyotes, but Sue knows her dealer told her what's left of the eighth she bought on Wednesday in a plastic baggie beneath eyeliner and lip balm in her purse. I'm nervous about tomorrow's challenge, says Destiny on Pregnant Teen Motorhome on the Bunyan's television. It's not fair we all have to scale the rock climbing wall regardless of if we're in the first or third trimester. Bill drives Sue out of the suburbs into the scrublands off-roads on a winding dirt path that meets the highway between two massive billboards telling him that life begins at conception and that Pussycat Palace has truck parking in back, the air crisp, the stars ostentatious, the landscape forbidding and desolate. It feels good to get away from the Walmarts and PetSmarts and Bed Bath & Beyonds once in a while, 
to spend time in a place where vultures circle, waiting for you to die. So my guy worked out okay for you, says Bill. Plumes of dust trailing the Civic as he drives deeper into the semi-arid wilderness. Yes, thank you, says Sue. Fixed the wires, got everything patched up. My daddy was none the wiser. He rarely drives the Explorer anyway since he got the BMW. Funny guy too, your guy. You know, I never learned his real name. That is his real name, says Bill. Sweet Lips? That's right. That can't be his real name. Why not, says Bill. It's what everyone calls him. That doesn't make it real, says Sue. Bill clicks the brights on for no particular reason. A second later, clicks them off. Real enough, says Bill. Real as anything else. Meatloaf again, the apple seeds, corn on the cob, baked beans, Texas toast, artichoke, hearts. I ran into Juliet Felthauer's mother at Pottery Barn today, says Mrs. Appleseed. At least 50 nuclear warheads missing since the Cold War, says Johnny. A black market in radioactive materials thriving in lawless Pakistan. One kiloton bombs that fit in a suitcase and carry the power of 1,000 tons of TNT. Bill reaches the end of the path, terminating at the edge of a thicket of low brush, and puts Widowmaker in park and cuts the engine, the lights and radio left on, the DJ saying this one goes out to Luann and Cripples Creek, Sue's daddy no doubt homicidal if he knew his daughter was out ten miles from anywhere with a man she just met in a weedy, trash-strewn parking lot in the bottom of the barrel, a hunting rifle in his closet and a magnum in a bedside drawer. Maybe that's why she's here, and maybe it's something else. Cripples Creek, a town Sue has never heard of. For all she knows, it isn't even real. I love you so much, Snake, says Lana tearfully on the Bunyan's TV. I hate you right now, because I love you so much. Sue gets the weed out of her purse and packs a bowl, and she and Bill pass the pipe back and forth. So nice to smoke without the aid of dryer sheets or Coca-Cola bottles or citrus-scented aerosol spray. She and Bill don't talk, just inhale and exhale. The stars beautiful, but neither of them knows what they're called. Bill has his own names for them. Sue prefers them nameless. Smoke fills the interior of the Civic, and the stars shine upon the shrub scraggled earth. You think you know what's going to happen, but it's not what's going to happen, is the first thing Bill says after the last of the weed has burned to a white ash. And what do I think's going to happen, says Sue. Murder red lipstick, same as when she and Bill first met. You think we're going to sit here for a while and look at the stars, says Bill. Talk a little, learn small facts about each other. Favorite foods, zodiac sign, cat or dog person, places we have to see before we die. And at some point, there's going to be a long silence. And as you're thinking, is he going to put his hand on my hand? I put my hand on your hand. 
and then everything happens so fast you can't process it properly your fingers tongue pelvis and lips performing various actions tentative explorations and sudden movements but why or how this is happening is uncertain your body a runaway boxcar in accelerating relentless motion with no engineer Jenny staring at her cell phone beneath the Appleseed dinner table sorry followed by a sad face the mouth so wide and sad on the sad face crying silently the opposite of LOL you think I'll speak quietly in your ear afterwards continues Bill I'll sing to you maybe and I'll have a sweet voice pure and clean and you'll ask me what was it like to be raised by coyotes and I'll ask you what it was like to sleep between wooden bars and you'll feel that everything has changed inside of you somehow your organs and bones and meat and blood all swapped out with replacement parts and you'll be surprised at how easy it is to alter your entire being so completely and you'll ask me did you eat jackrabbits and I'll ask you, did you eat mashed apricots out of a jar? I ain't naming him after his daddy, that for sure, says Kamika to the camera in a secluded corner of the motorhome. Name him something totally different, like Quincy or Dwight. You think you'll see me only on the weekends at first, says Bill. I'll pick you up one block from your house and drive you to the scrublands and to dimly lit bars in the bottom of the barrel and each night we'll give away a little bit more of ourselves until we hold majority stakes in each other and become both owners and possessions. I am his. I am hers. He, she is mine. Juliet felt how his mother was saying that Juliet is on the committee for the school yearbook, says Mrs. Appleseed. Have you ever thought about helping out with the yearbook, Johnny? A dirty bomb, says Johnny. Sarin gas, the entire U.S. power grid crippled by an electromagnetic pulse. You think you'll understand me like no one else understands me, says Bill, the DJ saying this one goes out to Peaches in Bramble City. You think I'll understand you like no one else understands you. I'll say be careful because I'm wild and full of coyote blood. You'll say don't worry, I'll tame you. But you like me a little wild and never tame me completely, just enough so that I don't go chasing after jackrabbits or lick my own genitals in public or spend all my weeknights howling at the moon. The first thing I'd buy, if I win the $100,000, says Kendra in her taped confessional, well, my truck's been acting kind of funny. If it's too much of a hassle to fix, I guess I'd just buy me a new truck. You think I'll never leave you? never grow tired of you, never trade you in for somebody else. You think I'll never prowl the bars or hunt the alleys for game or call an old familiar number when I'm lonely and you're out of town and reenact a steamy evening in 2010 in the backseat of Widowmaker. Same lines, same positions, same outfits and prophylactics and haircuts for a cheap thrill, for a laugh, for old time's sake. If he's sorry, it means he still has feelings for me, thinks Jenny at the dinner table. 
if he didn't care about me, he wouldn't apologize. He's maybe just confused. I know I'm confused. If I knew what to do, I'd do it. I'd do it in a heartbeat. But I don't know. Sad face. Smiley face. Opposing parentheses. Vote for me, Jenny Appleseed. Integrity. You can trust. You think you'll depend on me, says Bill. You think I'll depend on you. Diamonds. Invitations. Tossed rice. Joint checking accounts. Pink lines. Baby showers. Anniversaries. Cemetery plots purchased in advance. I feel her kicking, says Cammie, just before the final credits. She lifts her shirt up and puts her hands on her belly and looks at the camera and at Paul Bunyan and at his half-asleep mother and four younger sisters, mesmerized in their stolen Episcopalian folding chairs in the bottom of the barrel. I feel her kicking, and I want that hundred thousand dollars so bad. You think you know why the wind is lonesome, says Bill. You think you know why the coyotes howl. And the first thing Sue says, after the weed has burned to a white ash, is, so then, what is going to happen? This is it, says Johnny Appleseed. Your time is up. There is a long silence, then Bill puts his hand on Sue's hand. The credits roll. Don't you want a little house? We can live all by ourselves. Hang like laundry, you and me. Cause quiet is the life I need. Don't you want a pretty life? paper you and me cause I know trouble comes in threes no one says you would let love go to your head I know I sighed it was my goodbye lullaby Oh, oh, oh. 
It's not what you say, but what you do. So maybe trouble comes in twos. No one said I would let this love get too.